Listen, God doesn't need a professional. He just needs a working vocal cord, right? God used a donkey to speak and thus he can use any of us to accomplish great things for his glory. Well, hey there, welcome to the Shoreline Church Podcast. My name is Pastor Pilgrim Benham, and you're listening to our series in John called Jesus Is. Today's message is in John chapter 1, verses 35 through 51. The title is Five Guys. Hope you're blessed. Uh, We all, from time to time, need to be disturbed, right? We need to be provoked. We need to be kind of shaken out of our comfort and out of our religiosity and complacency, and we need to move towards the needs that are around us, the spiritual needs. So let me just put the quote on the screen. The quote is this, Jesus called us to be fishers of men, not keepers of the aquarium. Hmm. Jesus called us to be fishers of men, not keepers of the aquarium. I don't like that quote. I like the comfort of the aquarium, meaning we've got the fish in the bowl, they're all Christian, and we're kind of safe in the bowl. We're safe in the aquarium. I like it. It's predictable. It's warm in here. Uh, The fish here are friendly. You guys are a little quirky, but hey, at least you're familiar. At least I know who you are. Keeping the aquarium is relatively easy. We just kind of wipe the the glass walls down from time to time, and we keep the water flowing, and and we just kind of float, right, and wait to be fed, and we kind of open our mouth, and man, that that sounds, well, that sounds a little scary. That's a little unfamiliar. That's dangerous. That's costly. That means that I can't just sit here and float, but I actually have to go and do something. What that means is that I have to create bait, and I actually have to use that bait uh, to cast it out, and, and God forbid I actually have a bite. If I actually get a fish in the boat, now what do I do? I, has it ever happened to you? I caught the fish, now what? Right, so I need someone who's skilled, like this thing's in the boat now, right? It's just kind of flopping there. What do we do? Do we just kind of let it die after 30 minutes of being in our boat? What do I do when I actually catch a fish, when I catch men? And yet Jesus has called us this morning, church, not to be keepers of the aquarium, but to be fishers of men. Think through evangelism for a moment. Evangelism is simply sharing the gospel with those who have not yet heard the good news about Jesus. If you're here this morning and you've not heard the good news about Jesus, we've just sang it, but God has created this world in perfection. Man entered the world and then sin entered the world. And because of our sin, uh, we were separated from God. And the, the horrible news is that now our sin, is com- our sin has completely separated us from a loving, holy God and has allowed us to essentially be condemned to an eternity apart from God. Yet God in his uh, amazing grace has sent his son to be one of us, to be man, to live a perfect life and to die a sinner's death and to take our place. But he didn't stay dead. He rose again from the dead. He conquered death. And now he offers that resurrection hope for all of us who would believe. And so today it's not about religion. It's not about church attendance. It's not about uh, wearing your Sunday best. It's not about trying everything you can do to get recovery. You know what it is? It's about believing upon the Son of God, Jesus, looking to him, beholding him as, we, as we've just sang. That is the good news, the glorious news. And to get that word out, we call evangelism. Now, think about evangelism for a minute. On the screen, there are the who, what, when, where, and why of evangelism. There's the who. The who is simply who we go tell the good news to. Uh, Just you tell me, is there anyone that should not hear the good news about Jesus? That's where you respond. Is there anyone that should not hear the good news? That's where you say no. Jesus said, go into all the world and make disciples of all the nations. So there's no people group who should be or who will be 
excluded. Uh, so what that essentially means is if we're to go into India, we're to reach every bit of the caste system. We're to reach even the untouchables. Every nation, tribe, and tongue. We don't discriminate. Then there's the what, the what of evangelism. In other words, what do we share? Well, we should be clear and precise in what we share. It shouldn't be muddy. We shouldn't say, hey, we're having a youth event. Everybody's going to come out. There's going to be pizza and explosions. It's going to be awesome. And then while they're there, we're like, hey, raise your hand if you want a free iPod. And they raise their hand. Oh, you receive Christ, right? There's no, we're not tricking people into the kingdom. It's very clear. Uh, it's Christ and him crucified, buried, resurrected. And the gospel is news. And news needs to be communicated clearly, right? Then there's the when. So when should we share the gospel? I think there's opportune times and then there's, there's non-optimal times. Uh, we should always be looking and praying for the open door and looking for opportune times to share the good news. One of the things my grandfather taught me uh, was every morning to wake up and pray that I would have someone to encourage, someone to lead to Christ in the Lord. And that's one of my daily prayers not every morning, but I tried to make it a daily prayer. Lord, help me to reach someone and encourage someone today. There's times that it's not opportune. Like, hey, I'm going to clock in at work, and then I'm going to stop working and evangelize. Probably not a good time uh, to get an you know, annual review when you're evangelizing, right? Uh, I personally don't believe you should evangelize when people are punch drunk. Someone's drunk. I don't think you should evangelize because they get saved, and then they wake up the next morning, and they didn't realize what happened, right? So there's opportune times. There's non-opportune times. But we should always be ready. Then there's the where. We've already kind of said that. Everywhere. We're to go into all the world. And some of us have access to some great um, available opportunities. God has granted us access uh, to reach more people. And then there's the why. Why? Why do we share the good news? Because it's the life-changing, good news, best news that Jesus saves. Amen? That is glorious news. I think you guys need to wake up this morning because I'm excited about this and it doesn't seem like you're excited about this. Is this not amazing news? This is glorious good news. Jesus saves. I'm saved. I'm going to be in heaven. Isn't that great? Some of you are like, are you sure? Yeah, I'm sure. I'm going to be in heaven. And, and you are too if you've received Christ. So those are kind of straightforward. But then there's the how. The how. And the how of evangelism, well, we get a little confused. We get a little stressed. More books have been written on the methods of evangelism than the message of evangelism. And that to me is a little funny. We care more about how we do it than what we're actually saying. Uh, that's like saying, like walking up to someone and the guy goes, here, I want you to try some food. And you go, okay, wait, but what am I eating? And he goes, no, 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 don't, just, you got to eat it with chopsticks. This is how you eat it. You know, I don't want to eat it. Tell me what I'm eating first, right? We worry about the how instead of worrying about the what. Uh, we get all over focus. And so I found that there's kind of four methods, four hows. And this is not exhaustive. Otherwise, we'll be here until about 3 o'clock today. Uh, but these are the four methods I've seen. This, these are the hows. The first is, if you're taking note, I want you to write these down uh, so you can kind of get an idea or you can take a picture with your phone. Uh, the first method is presentation. So the idea here is that there's someone speaking to an audience uh, and the audience is maybe one person or 100 or 100,000, you're presenting the gospel. You might be on a street corner with a bullhorn. You may be face-to-face. -face. You may hand a track. Uh, you may be maybe sitting down and saying, okay, let me share with you from Romans Road. Now, it's a presentation. Maybe it's a video, the Jesus film. It's a presentation, okay? Um, the benefit of that is that you could actually reach a lot of people at once. Harvest America, we're going to be doing on June 10th at the office, and that's an incredible opportunity to invite people that don't know Jesus. 
presentation. The disadvantage though, right, is that there's not a lot of relationship. I can walk up to a guy and go, here's a track, God bless you. And I don't have a, I don't know him. I don't, is his name Bob? I don't know. I just handed him a track, right? So there's a lack of relationship. Uh, but you can reach many people. Second one is a little more personal, and that's invitation. So what people do here is they say, I'm inviting you into my home. I want you to see my family, me and my family, and we want you to know Jesus. Or I'm inviting you often at the end of the sermon to come to Jesus, to receive Christ, to repent, and to believe. I want you to consider the claims of Christ. A lot of us invite people to church, and that's a little easier. Just invite you to church. Uh, and then yeah, at church, you'll hear about Jesus. More attractional idea. Then there's the third one. The third one is intercession. And this is where we just say, I'm not going to say anything. I'm just going to pray, right? And, and certainly, that's good. Acts 4.31, all evangelism should begin with earnest prayer. That's good. Uh, we pray for an open door and an effective uh, gospel witness, Ephesians 6 and Colossians 4. Those are important things that we pray for those. Pray for boldness. Pray for clarity. We should always be praying. Okay, evangelism without prayer, it's powerless preaching, right? But prayer without evangelism is hypocrisy. Why? Because we're praying that God would reach our neighbors, but we're not willing to open our mouths and share the good news from our own lips. And so I want to make sure that we have a balance of evangelism, but we're praying for the people. All of us today can think of that one person that we're praying for or that we should be praying for to come to know Jesus. Some of you, it's your, your relative, it's a neighbor, it's a coworker, uh, it's a barista, and uh, you're praying for them. We should be. But we also need to speak. And so the last one is number four, inspiration. And this method takes St. Francis of Assisi's statement where he said, preach the gospel at all times or preach Christ at all times, and if necessary, use words. <laughs> uh, yeah, here's the thing. It's always necessary to use words when we're giving the gospel. See, it's, faith comes by hearing, not seeing. So we must live our lives in such a way that attracts people, but we have to at some point use our lips. At some point, we've got to say, Jesus saves. Do you know Jesus? Uh, and so it's important that we not just have the gospel through our deeds, but also through, demonstrated through our lives. So I would say this, with all those on the screen, a healthy balance of evangelism should include us praying and living lives that are attractive to the world. Uh, it should be where we're inviting people um, into our home and into our fellowship. Uh, and then at a certain point, we present the gospel uh, with clarity. And that leads not just to conversion, but to discipleship. All right, that's a long definition, but you get what I'm saying, right? That's what evangelism should be, ideally. One person said evangelism wasn't meant solely to be a presentation, but also a lifestyle lived out daily in normal cultural contexts. The text that we're going to study today gives us a straightforward glimpse on a method of evangelism that's possible for every one of us here today. This morning, you may not have gone to Bible college. You may not have an MDiv. If you don't even know what that is, that's fine. You may be here this morning and you would never be able to stand on a street corner. Hey, you're an introvert. You wouldn't even be able to talk to someone you don't know without a mild heart attack, okay? I, I understand that. And so this, this passage is encouraging for every one of us today, no matter what your, your extroversion or introversion looks like, whether you could go up and talk to a handful of people and say hello, or you could share Christ in an elevator, or there's no way you're even talking to the person sitting next to you and they invited you, okay, I get it. But this message today, this passage today 
will encourage us to fulfill the Great Commission and share the gospel because what we're going to read is quite possible for every one of us here today. Can you look at your neighbor and say, it's possible, bro or sis. It's possible. Go ahead. Tell them. It's possible. If you don't have a neighbor, tell yourself. It's possible. Okay. The title of today's message is Five Guys, and it has nothing to do with the amazing fast food burger joint of which I love the Cajun fries, and I'm not endorsed by Five Guys to tell you to go get the number two this weekend. It's half price. You'll love it. Thank you so much for fiveguys.com. No, this section of scripture, uh, it's where we see Jesus' first five followers, okay? The first five disciples who begin to follow Jesus. So on the screen, here's how we're gonna break down what um, Roxanne just read, what we just read, verses 35 through 51. Here's how we're gonna break this down. We're gonna first meet John and Andrew in verses 35 through 39. Then we're gonna meet Peter, of course, and you'll see Peter's kind of a backdrop in today's story. Usually he's at the forefront. We'll see Philip in verses 43 through 46, and then Nathaniel uh, through verses 47 through 51. So with that in mind, look at verse 35, and we'll meet John and Andrew. Again, the next day, John stood with two of his disciples, and looking at Jesus as he walked, he said, Behold the Lamb of God. Now note with me in verse 35, you might want to underline those three words, the next day, right? The next day. This is the third day in John 1 since John the baptizer has identified Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And John has directed everyone who came to be baptized by him, everyone who came to find out who John was, everyone who's just kind of an onlooker today, Uh, He wanted them to check out Jesus, to behold his ministry and see who Jesus was. And so now it's a couple days later, two of his own followers, John the baptizer's own followers, um, he says to them the same message, behold the Lamb of God. The same message that he preached the day before. Now in this case, John is doing more than just merely drawing two of his disciples' attention to Jesus. He's actually saying, okay guys, you've been following me for a while, I want you to stop following me and start following Jesus. Uh, They've been following him, and now he's saying, now follow Jesus. By the way, that's John's ministry, and that's all of our ministry, right? We're just pointing people to Jesus. That's all I'm doing. Uh, Someone said, hey, I like you, pastor. You have a lot of answers. I said, I don't have any answers. I can point to the one who does, though. All right, I can point to him. I can point to the one who does have the answer. And so that is our ministry. It's just to point people to Jesus, Uh, D.A. Carson says this on the screen. Everyone else who comes to Jesus in this chapter does so because of someone else's witness. Isn't that awesome? So verse 37 tells us uh, that they transitioned their allegiance. Notice it says the two disciples heard him speak and they followed Jesus. At this point, they pulled up their church membership roster and they transferred. They asked the dean of admissions to transfer their credits to the new school. They said, I'm no longer going to be following this path. I'm now following this path. I'm not following this mentor. I'm now going to follow this rabbi. And so Jesus says to them, notice verse 37, seeing them following, Jesus turned and said to them, what do you seek? These are the first words that Jesus utters in public ministry. Jesus says, what do you seek? Now, remember, these two guys are not nobodies. They've been disciples of John the Baptist. They understand, at this point, repentance, right? They understand taking serious the law and the prophets. They understand 
that the Messiah is coming and that John's preparing the way. But they needed more. Uh, They may have been trained and skilled in John's doctrine, but they didn't need more of the same of John's doctrine. They needed Jesus. They needed to understand John's doctrine in light of the cross. And so they needed to begin following Jesus in a new way and behold the Lamb of God. Now notice that Jesus asks them, what do you seek? He doesn't try to offer them a sales pitch. He doesn't give them the features and benefits of choosing to drop their allegiance to John and why following Jesus makes him a superior rabbi. He doesn't do that. He doesn't even ask them, hey, do you want to follow me? He just says, hey, what are you seeking? What are you seeking? And that's a question that we should ask more people, I believe, today. We should just ask people, what is it that you really want? What are you seeking? Because everyone is a seeker. They actually, in the 80s, began this movement called the seeker movement, seeker churches. What's funny is that God is a seeker. He's seeking those who will worship in spirit and in truth. So there's that. Uh, But I don't disagree that people are seeking after something. They're longing to be fed or to be spiritually um, drawn in. And so one article I read this week says this. This is not a believer. I thought this was insightful, though. They said neuroscience shows that the act of seeking itself rather than the goals we realize is key to satisfaction. Neuroscientists can't pronounce it, argues that of seven core instincts in the human brain, anger, fear, panic, grief, maternal care, pleasure, lust, play, and seeking, seeking is the most important. Isn't that interesting? Non-believers say, yeah, seeking after something is the highest uh, instinct in the human brain. Today, everyone alive is a seeker. And Jesus says, what do you seek? Right now in Israel, people are seeking land, whether it's Israel or Hamas. People are seeking today, maybe this morning, love. You're seeking a relationship and fulfillment. Some of us are single and we're just like, if I just meet Mr. Right or Mr. Right now, I'll take either one. Just get me that guy and then life will be good. We're seeking after love. Some people are seeking after leisure and you can't wait for me to stop preaching so you can go home or go to Five Guys, right? You just wanna get out of here where you can lay your feet up and just take a nice nap and watch something on the television. Satisfaction. Some people are seeking life How do I live longer? How do I live happier? How do I live more successfully? How do I find meaning and worth? Now, you may not be seeking any of those, but chances are you're self-seeking. We're all seeking something. And so Jesus said, what do you seek? Notice their response. It's a little bit interesting. Look at the second half of verse 38. They said to him, Rabbi, which is to say when translated teacher, where are you staying? They call him Rabbi. But in that one title, they're now choosing in that address to submit to Jesus' teaching and to train up under him. But at first glance, when I read this, I was like, wait a minute, why are they asking him, where are you staying? It's one of two things. They're either asking him, hey, where are you staying? Uh, Because they either want to check out where Jesus was staying so they could make the decision later. We're going to go with Jesus. Where are you staying, by the way, Rabbi? And so he shows them his two-star accommodations, and they later go, okay, thanks for the invite. We're going to stay with John the Wilderness and Honey and, and, uh, and, and Locust. That was a little better than the, the, you know, the Holiday Inn uh, you're staying at. So we're, we'd like to stay with John. Now, I don't believe that's what's happening because they're already there. They're already calling him rabbi. The second option is he just said, what are you seeking? And they want to verbally confirm that they're with him. They're saying, hey, we're willing to go home with you tonight and to stay where you're staying. We're, we're with you. We're not just going to follow you on Sunday and just go to church and do the teaching thing. We're actually, we want to commune with you. We want to live with you. We want to follow you home and see your lifestyle. You see, these two men were longing not just 
for someone that they could be taught from, but someone that they could learn from. Much of, of what we teach is not just taught, it's caught. It's important for us who have people in our lives that we're inviting them in to know Jesus by watching and observing our lives. Notice what Jesus doesn't say. He says, come and see. Come and see. Notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, come to seminary. He doesn't say, come to my seminar and leadership. Jesus doesn't say, come to the synagogue and I'm gonna teach you uh, the Torah. Uh, No, he says, come follow me, come and see, come observe. Observe my life, my teachings. Watch how I speak and live. See how I interact with the sick and the marginalized and the eager and the religiously superior. And see, that's what Jesus is inviting you and I to as well. Come and look at him, and in our lives, inviting people to come and watch how we live our lives. And that's a little scary, right? Because that means we have to live in in such a way that's consistent and compatible with the gospel. Um, With each one of these guys, these disciples, we're going to get an application point. So here's what we learned from John and Andrew. If you're taking note, John and Andrew teach us that many people need to see the gospel in our lives before they hear the gospel from our lips, right? Amen? When I worked at Apple years ago, I didn't want people to know that I was a pastor. So I would kind of uh, introduce myself and they'd say, so what do you do? Uh, what do you, like, tell me about yourself, my coworkers. And I would kind of say, oh, well, yeah. Um, so I, um, I, I try to encourage people and motivate. And, uh, and so I tried to avoid saying the words, I am a pastor or I am a Christian. And later what would happen is they would come up and say, hey, I found out you're a Christian and I thought something was different about you. Hey, you're a pastor. I knew I didn't like you for a reason. No, I'm just kidding. Like, okay, I knew there was something about you, right? And that's the way we want to live our lives, that it's attractive to those who don't yet know Jesus. Now, we're told in verse 40 that one of these two men is Andrew, but we aren't positive who the other disciple is. I'm saying it's John. There is strong evidence that it's John who wrote the Gospel of John. We sometimes refer to him as John the Evangelist. Uh, One commentator said this. They said, who the other disciple was is not certain, but considering, number one, that the evangelist never names himself, he always says the disciple whom Jesus loved, and two, that this account is so minutely accurate as to specify even the hours of the day, and in all respects bears marks of an eyewitness, and again, number three, that this other disciple from this last circumstance certainly would have been named had not the name been suppressed for some special reasons. We're justified in inferring that it was the evangelist himself. So this is John and Andrew by most uh, accounts. So they begin to follow Jesus. Now let's see the third disciple, Peter. Look at verse 40. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. Look at verse 41. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which is translated the Christ. And he brought him, Peter, to Jesus. Now, when, Peter looked, when Jesus looked at him, he said, you are Simon, the son of Jonah. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated a stone. So, uh, if I can have your attention, Andrew comes to Peter and he notices uh, that, uh, or he announces to Peter, hey, we found the Messiah. We found him, or the Christ. And so then Andrew brings Peter, his brother, to Jesus. So whenever we see Andrew in the New Testament, he's bringing people to Jesus. Every time we see Andrew, just about, here he's bringing his brother. Later, remember that whole like crowd of 5,000 men and they're supposed to feed, the disciples are supposed to feed those people? 
I've had trouble feeding, you know, 100 people at a, at a barbecue, but 5,000 men, right, that's a big order. And so Jesus says, hey, you guys feed him. And so Andrew, remember, he brings the little boy with the loaves and the fish. And, you know, if I were one of the other disciples, I would have said, really? Like, really? Come on, bro. Like, like just embarrass yourself in front of Jesus. So like, good, good call. Right? The, the, you're going to bring a little kid's packed lunch, and yet Andrew brings this boy to Jesus. Later, even on later, um, Philip wanted to tell Jesus about certain Greeks that were seeking after Jesus, but first Philip went to Andrew, and then Andrew brought them to Jesus. The name Andrew, by the way, is a superior name. Uh, I wish my parents may have named my middle name Andrew. If you're named Andrew here today, go ahead and give yourself a pat on the back. I know there's a few Andrews. Here's what Andrew means. Andrew means manly, brave, manhood, valor. The name actually means manly. I mean, hello, that is an awesome name. If you're pregnant today, I'm thinking Andrew. If it's a girl, Andrea. Okay, let's go for it. <laughs> Andrew is a fisherman. And Jesus tells him, one day you're going to catch men. Uh, his first order of business, though, is to invite his own brother to meet Jesus. He announces that, hey, he and John, we found the Messiah. The Jews, remember, were looking for a savior, a savior from Roman oppression and rule who would set up his kingdom and rule and reign with righteousness. And so it's interesting to me that Andrew comes to Peter and he doesn't just say, hey, we found, uh, we found a, a new rabbi. We found a great teacher. He says, we found Messiah, the one who's going to overthrow Rome. And so Jesus, that would have appealed to Peter. And Jesus looks at Peter and says, hey, your name is Simon, but I'm giving you a new name. I'm going to call you, though you were son of Jonah, son of a dove, you've been kind of the dove-like, you think of a dove, you think of kind of a soft-hearted, beautiful, right, there's a Thomas Kincaid photo, there's a dove somewhere, it's, it's kind of flying and in the breeze, and so that's Peter, he's known as son of a dove, kind of a softy, and yet he says, I'm going to rename you the rock, you're going to be the rock, right, Rocky, yo Adrian, right, this is you now, Peter, uh, Andrew was someone who needed guidance, and Peter was someone who needed grounding. And so Jesus takes these two fishermen brothers and turns them into fishers men. Now, what point can we make from Peter's calling? I love this on the screen. Peter teaches us that Jesus can use anyone to accomplish great things. Can we get an amen? Jesus can use anyone. So there's Peters in your life that you don't think you could reach. You don't think Jesus could reach. Guess what? They're the outlandish, the person on the fringe, the person on the edge. I, I want to encourage you to don't discount the Peters, the Simon son of Jonah's. God can use anyone. You know, he used me. I was the shyest kid in my class growing up in school. I was that kid. If you said, hey, good morning, pilgrim, I would turn beet red, and I'd start kind of like convulsing, right, from, from fear of humans spoke to me today, mom. I had a traumatic day. <laughs> I couldn't handle it. Right, and so here's, in God's infinite humor and wisdom, here I am, that's what I'm doing with my life, is speaking to crowds of people. Wow, uh, fellowshipping and, and building and equipping the church. And that's, uh, that's a tough order, and that's only by his spirit. But God can use anyone. He uses a fisherman to reach another fisherman. And then he uses that fisherman, who's prone to jumping out of boats and cutting people's ears off, speaking when he shouldn't, uh, who will end up denying his Messiah three times. He ends up using him to be the mouthpiece through which 3,000 people come to saving faith. Today's Pentecost Sunday, and we, we commemorate and remember the day of Pentecost where Peter stood up and had the boldness to preach the gospel. Listen, God doesn't need a professional. He just needs a working vocal cord. 
right? God used a donkey to speak, and thus he can use any of us to accomplish great things for his glory. So look at our fourth disciple, Philip, verse 43, Philip. It says, the following day, so now we have another day, Jesus wanted to go to Galilee, and he found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. So he's connected, most likely knows Andrew and Peter. So Jesus wants to leave the eastern side of the Jordan, and he wants to head into Galilee. And notice verse 43. This is important. You read through it. It didn't seem important. It is important. It says that Jesus found Philip. Everybody say found. Who found Philip? Very good. Yes, the correct answer, as with every Sunday school answer, is Jesus. Yes, Jesus found Philip. Okay, please highlight the word found right there in verse 43. Jesus found Philip. That's going to come back to play in a minute. Now, verse 44 tells us Philip was from Bethsaida, where Andrew and Peter from. On the screen, get your attention. Jesus is on the eastern side of the Jordan, um, and he's next to Bethsaida, most likely. And now he wants to go over to Galilee. See, it's on the western side of the Jordan. Okay, and so... Um, he wants to bring Philip along, so it says that he finds Philip, right? <clears throat> now, in this instance, he finds a man, Philip, whose name means lover of horses, right? That's what Philip means, lover of horses. If there's any Phils here today, there you go. Now, we only know what we know about Philip from John's gospel. He's the only one that gives us any insight. And Philip is someone who seems to constantly want to know more. He's always looking for an answer. He's always bringing a concern or a question to Jesus. He's that guy in your fourth grade class who always has questions or that little child who's always like, well, why? Well, why? And you tell them, why? Why? He's that child, right, who just keeps asking questions. Remember we just mentioned Andrew brings the boy with the loaves and the fish? Um, well, first it was Jesus who told the disciples, feed the crowd. And Philip said, oh, I mean, we couldn't do this even if we had eight months of wages, Hint, hint, wink, wink to the crowd. Like, we couldn't feed all these people if we had lots of money. And so he brings this concern financially to Jesus. He's got kind of the Philip mentality. Money will handle all of our problems. And so um, Philip later asked Jesus, hey, can you just show us the Father? And that'll be enough for us. Just show us the Father. Can we see the Father? Uh, Philip shows us that we must be willing to approach Jesus with any of our concerns, with all of our questions, because the answers we receive may be miraculous, they may be educational, but they're always going to be fruitful. Philip the Apostle, by the way, should not be confused with Philip the Evangelist, who's later appointed with Stephen as a deacon in Acts chapter 6. Different Philip, okay? Uh, and so, remember in Acts 6, they were kind of like our SOS team here. They were kind of like the team of people that came to help uh, those in need, right? Just think of SOS team for shoreline, but first century. So Jesus says to Philip, follow me, follow me. He doesn't know Jesus at this point. Can you imagine a guy randomly walks up to you in downtown Sarasota this week on your lunch break and just says, follow me, right? And then just begins to walk away. And one of you goes, oh, okay. Like, obviously this is a little bit random, uh, but I think it's incredible that he's, he obviously has some backstory, understands who Jesus is, and is willing to follow him. Now, look at verse 45. It says that Philip found Nathanael, and I want you to pay attention to what he says to Nathanael. He said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip said to him, come 
and see. Okay, so one commentator said this on the screen. Philip carries on the work. One wins one. If that glorious beginning had only kept on, now it takes a hundred to win one. Huh. Just keeping that tradition going of, of one reaching one. Now, Philip is excited because he's been looking for um, who Moses in the law and the prophets of the Old Testament have been foreshadowing. He's always been looking for the right answer. And in his invitation to Nathaniel, he gets some things incredibly wrong. His details are wrong. First, he says, we have found Jesus of Nazareth. Now, track with me. Jesus may have lived some years in Nazareth, but he wasn't of Nazareth. He was of Bethlehem. He was of Jerusalem, right? So Philip's doctrine's a little fuzzy. His Christology is off. Secondly, he says, Jesus, son of Joseph. <laughs> so his theology of the incarnation is even off. Jesus wasn't born of Joseph. He's born of the father. And finally, Philip says, did you catch it? Some of you caught it. We found Jesus. <laughs> Wait a minute. Didn't we rewind to verse 43? You underlined it, right? You highlighted it. Jesus found Philip, right? He didn't find Jesus. Jesus found him. So in like manners, listen, some of us say, hey, I found Jesus and my life was turned around. No, 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 theologically wrong. Jesus found you, brother. Jesus found you, sister. Let me remind you what Jesus says in John 6, right? That the Father reveals himself to us. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. You and I have been drawn, found by the Father. Now, Philip has a lot of zeal, but not a lot of knowledge. So to apply this on the screen, Philip teaches us two things. First, we, uh, we need to be willing to help teach people doctrine. I'm not gonna spend a lot of time on that, but a lot of people have their uh, passion down, but their theology is off. There's a guy named Apollos in the book of Acts. Had a lot of zeal. A lot of uh, giftings, a lot of passion, but he had a funky doctrine. And so uh, basically uh, Priscilla and Aquila uh, invest in him and help disciple him. And so maybe there's someone here this morning um, that you, you love Jesus, but there's some, there's some theology doctrine that's off. I would encourage you to find someone you look up to uh, in the faith and ask them to help disciple you in doctrine. And we've got great resources at our resource uh, center and at our church office to help you uh, to to help grow in doctrine. But some of us also have people in our life that we know that are weak theologically, and I think it's on us to help them uh, to grow. Second thing, though, is that Philip also teaches us that God can still work through imperfect gospel presentations. <laughs> Philip tells Nathaniel a lot of incorrect information, but it still reaches Nathaniel. I think back at all that I've taught over 20 years of ministry, and I realized there have been some really bad sermons. Please don't ever go back and search for some of my old. Now it's going to make you want to do it. There's just some bad sermons out there, right? Just where my theology was still getting worked out. It wasn't great. Things that weren't, uh, it was just weak doctrinally. Uh, but listen, the Lord can still work through our imperfections. Uh, some of us this morning are scared to communicate the gospel because we think we'll get it wrong. So then we never say anything. We never communicate. Spurgeon says this, he says, he did not say we found the son of God or the son of David, but yet he uttered all he knew and that is all God expects of you or me. Oh, what a mercy it is that the imperfections of our ministry do not prevent God saving souls by us. If it were not so, how little good would be done in the world. So Philip tells Nathaniel, Nathaniel kind of has a snarky response. He says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? That's kind of sarcastic. Literally, it reads this. Out of Nazareth, can anything good be? Okay. 
Now, some suggest that Nathanael is from Cana, and, and we do see that later in John. Um, and they say, well, because he was from Cana, Nazareth was a town that was a rival against Cana. And so they kind of had this Braden River, Lakewood Ranch kind of like rivalry going on. And so that's why he is bad on Nazareth. Well, that's not exactly true. See, a saying had arisen around Jesus' day that no prophet will ever come out of Galilee. And it wasn't true, but people just believed it. And so what Nathaniel doesn't know is, can any good thing come? Dude, the best thing in the world is going to come out of Nazareth. The best thing ever, right? In the least likely place, this little tiny town of Nazareth. And so Philip invites his friend, hey, come and see. It's the same invite Jesus gives John and Andrew. Come and see. I'm inviting you to come. So let's read more about Nathaniel, our last guy here, verse 47. says, Jesus saw Nathaniel coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom is no deceit. And Nathaniel said to him, how do you know me? Notice that he doesn't stop him and say, no, I'm not that great. He kind of agrees. Yeah, I don't have any deceit. How do you know me? And Jesus answered and said to him, well, before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, that's when I saw you. And he, that got him. Well, wow, you're the son of God. You're the king of Israel. And Jesus said, well, because I said that to you, you believe? You're going to see greater things than these. Truly, most assuredly, I say, hereafter you shall see heaven open, the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. Now, if you're taking note real quick, Nathaniel is listed often where Bartholomew is not listed in the roster of disciples. So a lot of people believe, I included, me included, that Nathaniel and Bartholomew are the same disciple. Okay? In Hebrew, the name Bartholomew is Barthalmai, or son of Thalmai. So Nathaniel seems to be his first name, Bartholomew his last name. So you would call him Nathaniel Bartholomew, especially if you were his mother and he was in trouble. Okay? Nathaniel Bartholomew. Now notice as he approaches Jesus, Jesus says, Behold, Ide, this is an Israelite indeed, in whom is no deceit. Now, this is a play on words. Um, Jacob, the patriarch and namesake of the nation, has a name that means deceiver. Jacob means deceiver. I'm sorry if your name's Jacob today, and your parents didn't just change it to Andrew, and you're good. Um, Jacob means deceptive or deceiver. It's okay. We're new in Christ, so it's good. Just change your name like Jacob did to Israel, all right? Israel means governed by God, submitted to God. So, um, uh, God changes Jacob to Israel. Now, in Genesis 28, Jacob has a vision at Bethel of this ladder. We call it Jacob's ladder. And there's angels going up and down this ladder. Okay? So Jesus is saying to him, you are of Israel, but you're not of Jacob. One commentator said, look, Israel without a trace of Jacob left in him. I like that. Nathaniel says, how, how do you know me? And then Jesus says, hey, before you were called by your friend Philip, I saw you under the fig tree. Now, just track with me for a minute. The Jewish Talmud would encourage you, if you're really seeking after truth, to go find a fig tree or a shade tree. Sit under the fig tree or shade tree and begin to study. Uh, that was the spot where you go to study the Torah and understand the Old Testament. Could it be, as Jesus brings up this random reference, you're going to see the angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Could it be that Nathaniel was under the fig tree studying Genesis 28? And looking at Jacob and pondering, what is that? I'm looking for the true and better Jacob, the one of whom the angels will ascend and descend upon. Now, could it be that as he's studying that and looking forward to Messiah, here Jesus is saying, yeah, I remember I saw you. You were studying. That's about me. You're going to see that in me, fulfilled in me. 
that are given to Jesus. Just on the screen, notice who Jesus is in these short passages. He's the Lamb of God. He's the rabbi teacher. He's the Messiah Christ. It's written of him in the Law and the Prophets. He's Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus the son of Joseph, we know better. He's the son of God, the king of Israel, and then Jesus calls himself the son of man. Now, what do we learn from Nathaniel Bartholomew? What do we learn from him? And here's what we learn on the screen. Nathaniel teaches us that sometimes people will have preconceptions about Christianity that in our gospel presentation we need to overcome. Nathaniel is someone who's of a noble reputation, no guile, no deceit. And he wants to be associated with, follow with me, a religious affiliation that did not include those Nazarenes, those people from Nazareth. Nathaniel, though a good man by Jesus' account, listen, he was racist in his response to his friend Philip. And listen, that may be something that we experience in the world. It may not be racism per se, it certainly could be, but there may be some other type of bias or uh, prejudice that we face as we share the gospel today in the current climate of our culture. And I believe this is going to be more and more of an issue. Uh, when you introduce to yourself uh, to your coworkers, to your neighbors as a Christian, more and more, listen, that's going to be looked down upon uh, with disdain. And it's not going to be looked up as a good thing as it was in the previous generation. It's not going to be a, oh, you're a Christian. That's really great. It's going to be, oh, you're a Christian. Matt Chandler has said that um, Christians in modernity have lost the moral high ground uh, because we're in the twilight of Christendom. It's coming to a close and we're in a post-Christian nation. Now, I believe that's true. And so when we share the gospel more and more, we're going to find ourselves being ostracized and having to overcome expectations of, oh, Christians are all judgmental. Christians are all, uh, are all moralistic, irrational, and preachy. We're going to have to overcome that. And so know that as you walk into a situation, you may have to not do damage control, but you may have to uh, work through some of those prejudices. So when we introduce the gospel to different types of people, notice back with me that in this section, there's four different groups of people. And really, as we present the gospel, there may be four different people groups who are seeking. Just on the screen, follow this with me before we close today. John and Andrew, if you notice, they were seeking a mentor. They were looking for the right guide, someone I can look to to help me follow. I want to see an example in living color. Peter was seeking probably a mission, looking for the right cause, something to get involved with, a movement, a team, a business, a venture. I want to be a part of something that's bigger than myself. I mean, think about it. Later, as Jesus is arrested, Peter's cutting off the high priest's servant's ear to advance his cause. But when the cause threatens his own life, then he's willing to deny his involvement, even to a young girl who curses while he curses out loud. Right? He wants to find Messiah who saves them from Rome. He doesn't realize Messiah is going to save you from your own sin. He was seeking a mission. Some people are seeking a mission. They want to be a part of something. Uh, Philip was seeking a manual. He wanted the right answer. Just show me the Father. Show me the right answer. Give me the right conclusion. Uh, many people today that we interact with just want a way to live their lives successfully. They want a manual. They want to live out the truth, a way. And yet we have a savior who says, I am the way. Not I don't, he doesn't say I know the way, he says I am the way, follow me. And finally, Nathaniel was seeking morality. He wanted to be a part of something where there's moral superiority. He didn't want to be associated with something deficient. He's looking for the right decision. And these are the variety of people that you and I are gonna interact with as we evangelize. A variety of different people. And the question is, are we like the men in this narrative 
who are willing to bring people, even our family, even our friends, to Jesus. J.I. Packer says this before we close. He said, evangelizing is not simply a matter of teaching and instructing and imparting information to the mind. There's more to it than that. Evangelism includes the endeavor to elicit a response to the truth taught. It is communication with a view to conversion. It is a matter not merely of informing, but also of inviting. And I want to invite the band forward as we close in song. This morning, you may not be a pastor or full-time in paid ministry work, but you don't have to be. Would you close your Bibles with me and get settled? All all of us can uh, do what's done in this chapter. And what's done in this chapter is, notice, we're just bringing people to Jesus. We're bringing a friend, a family member, someone we know, we bring them to Jesus. I love this final quote from Spurgeon. It says, where should missionary work begin? It's a good question. We have a world, a 1040 window with many people that still have not yet heard. Where should it begin? He says, a brother should begin with his brother. It's all very well to have a desire to go to the heathen in Africa. You'd better begin work as a missionary in England and then go to Africa. He who cannot win his brother is not likely to win anybody else. He first findeth his own brother Simon. This Andrew who is afterwards to bring so many to Christ must begin at home and succeed there. If we are not faithful with one or two relatives, how can God trust us with a pulpit and a congregation? See, we're not meant to merely be keepers of the aquarium. We're called to be fishers of men. And that means we're to go into all the world, into every tribe, into every ethnicity, into the marketplace, into the university, into the urban centers, yes, into the suburbs, the rural outlying townships, the places we expect God's already at work, and the places where we believe maybe he's not at work at all. Are we willing to go and reach people where they're at today? Are we willing to go? My pastor's challenge for us today is simply this. Start with one. Start with one. Start praying for one person. Start looking for the opportunity to reach one person for Christ. Start with one. What could God do with one person? I'm going to throw out a theoretical. If we had three million Christians on the planet, we have many more than that, but if we had three million and each one of us reached one person this year for Christ, just one, then we next year would have six million believers. And this is not multi-level marketing. Don't get that idea. But if each one of those six million believers reach just one person next year, I don't do good at math, but you can see where this is going. Within a few years, we would have reached more people than Billy Graham ever reached filling stadiums with hundreds of thousands of people for 50 years. Let's start with one, with one. Few people know the name of Edward Kimball. I don't want to close with this. Edward Kimball was a Sunday school teacher, and he was a very timid, soft-spoken man. And he had a 19-year-old shoe salesman in his Sunday school class who wasn't yet a believer. And this young man was ignorant about the Bible. And the Sunday school teacher said, I'm going to visit all of my Sunday school students. And so he decided, I'm going to visit this one young man at his shoe store. And he walked in and kind of was not sure what he was going to say. Didn't have everything prepared. He went for it. He almost chickened out. He almost went home. He said, I'm going to go for it. And he mustered up the courage. He went into the shoe store 
and he starts to present the gospel to his shoe salesman, Sunday school attendee, and begins fumbling over his words. As he's trying to share the gospel, it just, nothing comes out good. Have you ever been there? You try to say something, uh, and it's not coming out. And so he couldn't remember what he said. It's something about Christ and his love. That's all he got out. He admitted later it was a very weak appeal. But what happened is that that shoe salesman gave his heart to Christ right then and there. And later God used that shoe salesman, D.L. Moody, to reach thousands for Christ in America and in England. And his impact continues today through Moody Bible Institute, Moody Radio, and the various publishing exploits where thousands and thousands have been trained and sent out and the gospel has gone out. But it took one person reaching him with the gospel. And you all have one. Let's start with one. Amen. Thanks for listening to our podcast. Shoreline Church meets Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. at the Lakewood Ranch YMCA. You can get more details by visiting our website, thisisshoreline.com. God bless you, and remember, it's all about Jesus.